It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 43, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guests today are Drew and Adam Montry from Ten Hens Farm. Drew and Adam raise vegetables in six large high tunnels and on three acres outdoors in Bath, Michigan, just outside of Lansing. They also both work off-farm jobs related to farming. Drew is the executive director of the Michigan Farmers Market Association and Adam as the Hoop House Outreach Specialist at Michigan State University's Center for Regional Farm Systems. In this wide-ranging discussion, Drew, Adam, and I talk about how they balance their off-farm jobs with a farming operation that could easily keep them both employed full-time, including their strategies for managing employees and their relationship with each other. We also dig into the nuts and bolts of selling to restaurants and how they grew with and helped to grow that marketplace in their area. They, we dig into winter production and the high tunnel they use for a packing shed, and we talk about Drew's experience as a, as a woman farmer and agricultural activist. As you'll hear, we had a lot of fun doing this episode, and I think you're going to get a ton of value out of it. Thank you for joining us again this week for the Farmer to Farmer podcast. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSAmerica.com. Drew and Adam Montry, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you, Chris. I'm so glad that you could both join us today. I think this is uh, something we've been trying to do more and more of lately is is to get couples on the show now that we've got the technology figured out on how to do that. And I think it, it's, well, it's kind of fun to hear from everybody. It, and it lets us get to spend a little time together too, right, Drew? <laughs> It does. It's nice to talk are, are to you. Guys, are you guys actually in the same room? Oh, no, of course not. Okay. Together, but separate. Yeah, on the same <laughs> line. Okay. Um, so why don't you guys fill us in a little bit on, on Ten Hens Farm and how you got started and how you guys relate to it and what it is now? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, Adam and I met in uh, 2002. And uh, we um, we were both studying horticulture, so we always had a dream and uh, about starting our own farm someday. But we weren't at that point then. Uh, we got married in 2004, and um, we were at Penn State at the time. And when we finished up, we took some time to uh, travel and work on other farms and see farms. Um, across the country, which was really incredible. And kind of our slogan at that time was, well, we're going to learn as much as we can, but it's not our farm. Um, but someday we're going to have our own farm. So we came back to Michigan. We're both originally from Michigan. Our families are in Michigan. Um, and we came, we moved back in 2006. And in 2007, uh, we bought our farm, uh, which was a perfect um, place for us at the time. It's in Bath, Michigan, which is just uh, north of Michigan State University, where um, Adam and I um, both are housed in terms of our off-farm work and um, it is a we have a 1910s farmhouse and a, a, about two acres of land that we own um, and we can when we talk more about scaling up we can talk about land that we farm in addition to land we own um, but it's been a, a great um, learning experience for us I would say over the last eight years. 
How close are you guys to to East Lansing, where where Michigan State University is located? So I think it's about 10 miles to the center of campus, um, but we're in a really nice little bedroom community of one flashing red stoplight in town. Um, it's actually growing pretty quickly. The 2000 census, there was a, a little more than 4,000 people. The 2010 census, there were over uh, 10,000 people. So it's a quickly growing area, but it uh, it feels like when we turn on you know the road to get out of town that we're kind of driving off to a, a little haven. Um, but if we need anything, we're really, you know, close to, to be able to hop in, which is something that we were looking for and, and, you know, kind of that rural character, but, but close to things. Is East Lansing your primary market for your produce? Yeah, we, um, our primary market is what we call the greater Lansing area, um, which is probably, um, from the, about maybe a 50 mile radius from where we're at, but yeah, the greater Lansing area. And we've just recently added um, a mid-sized um, distributor to our market. And so that product will travel outside of the Lansing area. Um, that will, that wholesale product will travel outside of the Lansing area, but not on our delivery route. Okay. And so you said two acres um, now, but you've got, you said also that you've got more in production than that. Yeah, right. we do. We um, we rent an acre from our neighbors that are just west of us. And um, we actually have three hoop houses on their property. Um, we have a great relationship with them. They're they're wonderful. And um, we also uh, rent a couple acres from a neighbor who is maybe two miles or so south of us. Is that right, Adam? Yeah, it's about a 10, a little more than 10 to 15 minute tractor ride. So what we were looking for when we were renting land was you know, that it's easy to get to, but also that we were able to drive the tractor to that so that we didn't have to buy a trailer, which we don't have, or also, you know, use the truck to move the tractor. And then if someone else, an employee was out delivering, you know, they, they'd be able to take the track or take the truck. So we didn't want to tie up the, the truck and the tractor and have to buy a trailer. So what does that add up to if you, if you put all three of those parcels together for total acres that you guys are farming? So we're about three acres um, and um, included in that is about 17,000 square feet of hoop house or high tunnel space, which works out to basically six thirty by 96 foot houses. So that three acres, does that include cover crop ground and, and field roads and everything? Or is that is that three acres total that you guys are actually farming? So it includes everything that we're farming and we have um we just started running the additional two acres this year so it kind of came up um some friends of ours were renting it and they had some changes in their life took some different jobs moved to, um, away and started farming on some property that they purchased and and so that property came up so we uh we were able to to get access to that this year and and we'll continue that going forward um and in the past because it's been so tight and intensive. Um, we haven't been able to do a lot of cover cropping. So we've mostly been, you know, we can purchase in some compost from close by, um, and on that smaller acreage, you know, for a reasonable price, we were more or less driving our outdoor and indoor production with compost. Um, but this year we actually have rye cover crop on all of our outdoor growing space, which is a, a first for us. Isn't it fun that first time that you actually pull that off? Uh -huh. <laughs> the warm fall has helped us. <laughs> I was going to say the weather is on our side uh, this year, which is great. Yeah, all, all around the Midwest. I don't know how it is, how it's been in the rest of the country, but it, it really has been this remarkably long, dragged out fall, which is kind of 
getting on my nerves. I'm ready to go cross country skiing, but, um, I, it's, it's, uh, I guess it's good if you have to work outside. Right. So, so I'm really interested. You guys have, um, high tunnels on rented ground, half of your high tunnels. Yeah. How does that work? Like Drew said, we've got incredible neighbors that, um, own about 40 acres, uh, and that they have got most of it in a conservation trust, um, never did redeveloped. He worked for the DNR department of natural resources for a long time doing illustrations for their publications. And so what they've done is when they bought it, they actually were corn and soybean, mostly rotation when they bought it. And they have now converted it into a number of different ecosystems. So they've got a prairie ecosystem. They have a jack pine forest. Um, they've got just all these different, um, features that they've added to this property. So 38 of that acres is in, in conservation trust, never to be, you know, developed. And then, um, they've got this acre that used to be a pasture and that's next to their house. And they are really supportive of what we're doing. They're really incredible people and they've just allowed us to do it. And, we, we talked to them early on. We wanted to pay them rent. They took uh, a payment. They, we twisted their arm enough for them to take some cash payment <laughs> early on. Um, and now this, it's not a, we asked if they wanted a formal written arrangement. Um, and, and they said, no, if we're okay, that they're okay. And basically now it's a, you know, those hoop houses around their property, whatever they would like to take out of them is at any time, you know, in any amount is open. I'm surprised that you guys don't have a written agreement. To me, that would seem like something that you guys would need in your business. I mean, that's half your covered production space. We talk about that all the time that in some ways there, I think in life and, and in business, sometimes there are always contradictions to the things that you do. And both Adam and I work with other farmers. We talk with new and beginning farmers. Then we always tell people you should have a written a rental agreement or a lease agreement. That's so important for your business. Um, and then there's also, you know, the flip side of that, where there are some relationships transactions that are, you know, just built on strong relationships. And um, we are really fortunate to have that um, and have incredible trust between, um, you know, both Hazel Ridge Farm and our farm. And uh, so I wouldn't recommend it to other folks. It certainly, you know, is probably it is certainly the best practice to have written uh, rental and lease agreements. But in this situation for us, um, we're we're both, both of our farms are there for the long term, and um, we're really fortunate to be able to work together like that. Fair enough. So, Drew, you mentioned the work that you do with other farmers, with beginning farmers and, and folks that are scaling up. Both you and Adam work off the farm, right? For a significant portion of your of your time. We do. Uh, so, so we both work a lot and, um, we're, we're really fortunate to be, um, in positions where we love the work that we're doing. Um, so I have worked, um, with the Michigan farmers market association, um, was the founding director and I'm now the executive director, um, have been working with the association since we started in, uh, 2006. And through that position, I have the incredible opportunity to work with about 300 farmers markets in the state and the thousands of small farmers and uh, small food and ag based businesses that sell through those markets. So um, it's certainly, you know, related and tied to the work that we do on our farm as well. Um, and there's a lot of what I learned on our farm that I can take to the Farmers Market Association and vice versa. I learned so much from the people um, that I work with. 
And Adam, you're involved with Michigan State University and the student farm there, right? Um, somewhat, yeah. So I work at this point, I'm 65% time in the Department of Horticulture. And the faculty advisor for the student farm is in the Department of Horticulture. Um, when we first came back to Michigan, I was working 50% time for MSU and was really closely tied to the student farm and 50% time for an organization called Michigan Food and Farming Systems, um, who is housed on campus, um, but it's his own nonprofit similar to MIFMA, uh, which is the Michigan Farmers Market Association where Drew works. So as things have grown or directions have changed and funding lines have changed, I work less with or at the student farm, although I still consider everyone their colleagues. Um, but I mostly work on two projects in the Department of Horticulture. One is Hoop Houses for Health, uh, which works with farmers and uh, vulnerable youth and families to supply capital to build hoop houses and then uh, incentives to, to purchase uh, purchase the products that are grown on those farms uh, by vulnerable youth and families as a way to pay back those loans. And then an online course uh, that's a not for credit for farmer uh, hoop houses uh, for year round production course. So those are, and, and I've gone from 100% time down to 65% time now at, at MSU. And I think it's important to add that um, the Hoop Houses for Health program that Adam works on is a joint program between MIFMA, uh, the Department of Horticulture, and the Center for Regional Food Systems. And so even when we're off-farm, uh, we <laughs> work together um, in our off-farm positions um, closely as well. That's pretty cute. <laughs> and always peachy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, and I would agree with what Drew said is that, you know, I think we're very fortunate to have the positions and the, the jobs and the people around us that we do. And that both, just like she said, with our farm strengthening her MIFMA position and, and her work at MIFMA strengthening our farm, uh, I feel the same way that it's, you know, what we learn from the farmers that we work with as part of Hoop Houses for Health and otherwise. And I think what we're able to share from our farm with them, just they reinforce and, and make you know our farm stronger and better and, and make the programs and the farmers that, that we work with stronger and better as well. And, you know, one thing that I think is important for people to understand is that both of our off-farm jobs are incredibly flexible. And so we both work a lot, um, but we also have the ability that if something has to get planted at home or a hoop house has to get covered or, um, you know, if something comes up with um, one of our daughters, we have flexibility in our off-farm job um, to be able to work around that. And so there are times when, you know, I work early in the morning on MIFMA stuff or I work on weekends on MIFMA stuff and we're able to really, we've um, been able to blend these positions in a way that works really well for us. And that is not the case for everyone that ha tries to have an off-farm job. So if you have a very set schedule where there's not a lot of flexibility, it might be a lot harder. Um, but in our case, we have flexibility that allows us to come up with a balance that works. But still, that's a lot of off-farm work. I mean, and, and six high tunnels and a couple of acres of, of production, that's plenty of time to, <laughs> I mean, that's plenty of farming to keep you guys busy all the time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And we're fortunate also that we have three great employees, um, and that, that know what they're doing and that we have brought their knowledge. And also we've trained and, uh, and my dad also helps out. Uh, they moved, my parents moved close a couple years ago and you know, my dad grew up farming and he, 
likes to do deliveries. Uh, he likes to come pick tomatoes early in the morning. And so, you know, between our three employees and him and, and us, you know, it, like you said, we keep busy, but our, our employees are really great and helpful too. I'm really curious. Do your employees work when you're working or do they, do they work all the time and, and kind of work independently around your schedule? So uh, the answer is yes and yes. So they definitely get lists and I try to work with them. So I'm mostly on farm Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, and so when I'm there, I'm mostly working with them or at least directing them. A lot of times there might be tractor work to do or, you know, other things, planting, seeding, and they may be harvesting. Um, but they also, uh, we try to keep them around for multiple years. And, and so they, uh, uh, know where things are. They know how we like things packed. They know where I leave lists. They, you know, they know how the farm functions. And so even like right now, you know, they're at home harvesting and, and packing for restaurant deliveries today. And then, uh, and then my dad is going to take our truck and go deliver, uh, once they've got everything harvested and packed. It's really great that you've got a a farming system that can work that smoothly, that it doesn't require your constant supervision. How have you gone about setting something like that up? Because that's something that a lot of people really struggle with. You know, I think that we should get back to how we should set it up, but we should also not portray it in a way that it's flawless. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait, I I thought that all of the farmer to farmer podcast guests were flawless. (laughs) We're going to have to end this interview right now. All right. There's no on our farm either. Just And uh, yeah, so I mean, we we do have, you know, we do have great systems in place. And I think that, you know, there are have been times where things have gone wrong and we've come home and had to rethink how we do things and how we be more clear about what our expectations are. So we've had examples where Adam has talked about running a hoop house warmer um, because we have a crop in there like ginger. And we have come home before and um, our team has taken that to has understood that direction as not um, rolling up the sides to have any <laughs> ventilation. And so the house that day was probably about 110 maybe 120 inside and we had a major setback um and you know we got water on the crop right away and um but we lost you know all above ground growth and it was um really trying because for us ginger in michigan is a high value crop um and that has just led us to try to be much more precise when we're giving directions and things like hey when you prep a bed um especially for new people on our farm crew, um, prepping a bed isn't one step. And so breaking that down into the steps that um, (laughs) they need to take to, you know, clean it out and then um, make sure that they're um, either tilling or um, broad forking and then raking it out and adding compost. So, you know, for us, sometimes it's like if you prep a bed, it's just we might understand exactly what each of us means by that. But to someone new on our farm crew, breaking it down into multiple steps so they really understand the process is much more helpful. And so those, I think, getting back to your question, um, developing systems like that um, and then always revising them so they make sense are important. I think it's it's so critical to, to for everybody when you, you know, to be able to lay out those expectations really clearly. You know, I mean, it's it's almost like it's almost like an abstraction when you say prep a bed. You know, that 
I mean, if, if you if you're the farmer, you know what the outcome is that you're looking for and how to create it. But like you said, there's there's a bunch of steps and a bunch of decision points in there that kind of need to be outlined if you don't have years and years of experience in vegetable farming to understand what exactly that means. And it's important for you and it's important for the employees so that they get a, a feeling of competence and success out of it. Exactly. And even if people do have some far, farm experience and they've worked on other farms, you know, the way that we prep beds on our farm is probably different, is different than other farms near us. And so us being more clear about what that means on our farm uh, is something that we've, we've been learning how to do better. You said you have some systems for doing that. How do those systems actually manifest? Like what, what do you do to, to tell somebody, Hey, prep that bed. I would say, I think for the, the bed prep is a really good example especially because as our farm has grown, that's changed for us. So when we had one hoop house and, you know, one or no employees, it was broad forking. And so then when some four employees came on, it was showing them how to do that. And then as we've grown and have, we've got to six, you know, hoop houses now, we're driving the tractor in there with a the tiller on it and tilling. And so it's changed to, okay, now instead of our employees needing to be able to, you know, know how to use the bread or the broad fork in, in the claw and the rake, it's now saying, okay, like I'm going in there or we're going in there, we're tilling with the tractor. Um, now this is how wide we do our bed. So we need to communicate like not only this is the standard size of our bed, but why is our bed that standard size? And so, um, each time they go in, they know, okay, this bed is, is, four feet here. And so every time they go in, it's not like some houses are three feet or some houses are four feet. So I think it's, it's standardizing things like that across the farm, which I think, you know, our, our house systems work, our standardization so that we don't have, you know, four or five different bed sizes. So now they know, okay, if I till it, they're going to measure them out and make, you know, aisles this wide, and then they're going to come in and they're going to put this much compost on, and they're going to put this many drip lines down. So I think getting those standardizations in place of bed size, number of drip lines, um, amount of compost per bed, those types, amount of fertilizer, if we're using some granulated fertilizer, um, you know, those types of things, having them in place. And, you know, ideally, and we've talked about it is, a you know, somewhat like an employee handbook that is, you know, down the road a little ways, but that we're starting to, you know, brainstorm about putting together so that they all employees will have an idea of what those standard bed sizes are, what cedar plate to use for seeding this or those types of things. And you know, the other thing we're trying to do is, is give our employees a little more skill training or job development and opportunities so that um, we're trying that, to teach them all how to drive the tractor so that they don't have to wait if something needs to be prepped, they can drive the tractor or they can change the equipment out instead of say one of us having to be there to get on the tractor or to change the equipment out. And I think that just takes a little bit of time with each of them um, to train them so that in the short term it might take longer, but in the long term, you know, they're able to prep a bed when I'm, when, when we're not there and say, it's going to rain the next day when we will be there, but we need to get it prepped today because it's going to rain tomorrow. So I think those types of things are, are how we're trying to, to do that is standardization across the and then have everyone trained up to a, a certain level and skill set of being able to do each thing. And I think that we're 
able to do some of that too. And in terms of like the trust that comes with letting your farm crew, you know, run equipment when you're not on the farm. Um, We, like Adam mentioned earlier is when we hire someone um, to, you know, work with us, we're not looking for just a short-term seasonal, you know, person that might join us for, you know, two or three months. We're looking for someone that's willing to commit um, to working on the farm for, you know, a couple of years or, you know, maybe longer. They live in our local community. Um, and that I think helps us build trust. And, you know, there's also the reality for us is, is that when our farm crew is on our farm and we're not there, our home is also open and, you know, they're, um, they, use the kitchen and they use the bathroom. And so there's a lot of trust um, in on our farm when it comes to our farm labor too. And I would imagine that your four season production system really helps with your ability to attract and retain people from a, over the years, you know, to really say to somebody at the outset, we're hiring for a job, not hiring for a summer position. Yeah, I agree. And, and their hours definitely are, you know, lower than they are, uh, during the summer, obviously, you know, with, with just 17,000 square feet, but we do try to keep them busy. We other, we have other projects on the farm that, you know, we need to get done, um, that sometimes get done. Like we have a chicken coop on the list that we need to tear down. And so, Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. (laughs) (laughs) It's on the list still, you know, and so like being able to have employees that maybe they're not, you know, only harvesting and packing and generating income, they're also able to help on other parts of the farm um, that maybe, you know, if we were there more often or, or more time that we wouldn't pay labor to do. But it also lets us, like you said, to keep them, keep them around so that come spring, we don't have to go through a whole new training with someone new, um, you know, every year or a whole new crew every year. So you guys started the farm while you were working off farm and you've continued to, to grow the operation over the years. How have you made those decisions with balancing that with your off farm jobs, which seem to have seem to provide a lot of value to you? It seemed they, they don't seem like things that you're you're trying to. It's not like you're going to quit next year. <laughs> right. Uh, I think that we, you know, I get a question. We, we get asked a lot of, you know, when, is, when am I actually going to you know leave MSU? And my response is always like, you know, I wish I didn't like my MSU job so much because <laughs> if I could just walk away, it would be, you know, easier maybe to just be on farm full time. But, but I love my off farm job and I don't want to want to leave it or quit it. So I think what we've been fortunate to have is, uh, not this pressure to scale up very quickly to go in big and be big that we've been able to. So Drew helped me with dates here. I think, you know, we added one hoop house in 2008. That was our first one. And then we sold out that winter. And so we added another one the next year, half of one, and then that sold out. And then some restaurants opened that weren't here. So some market opportunities opened and then a year round farmer's market started in the town that we live in. And so I think fortunately we've been able to not have this, all right, I'm going to, we're going to scale up and we're going to go all in and we're going to be really, you know, get bigger right from the get go. We've been able to scale up year to year as those market opportunities have 
presented themselves. More restaurants opening, you know, mid-level distributor, um, other farms wanting to buy product. And, and so I think that has been really fortunate that, you know, and, and, and again, that's different for everyone in, in the situations that you're in, but you know, the, the greater Lansing area has, has been growing, you know, for around local or regional food for the last, you know, six or seven years. And we were fortunate to have started our farm, you know, at the outset of that. And, and so that we could go after, you know, and be a part of some of these markets as they became available. And in addition to that, um, around when we went from one to two to six, um, when we added the last four, um, you know, Adam had been flirting with some hoop houses on a farm that was about 10 miles north of us. Um, some farmers that we had worked with in the past and they were um, thinking about moving um, and got relocated for a job. And um, so that's also another opportunity that came up is that we had an opportunity to move some hoop houses for a really good price. And so, you know, a lot of things for us, it's just when the opportunity presented itself, um, it you know, helped make those decisions as to, okay, are we ready to take this on? And, you know, probably, honestly, at that time, at least for the last four houses, we probably weren't ready to take that on at that time. We were just having our second baby and um, I was finishing my PhD and uh, we were working off farm and, you know, life was really hectic at that point in time. Uh, but it was such a such a good opportunity that you know somehow um we've just made it work and um and that's also you know we also have worked really hard and put a lot of time we put a lot of time into our collective work how how important has it been to have those off-farm jobs as a source of stability and capitalization for the operation i think they're imperative for us in the way that we just decided to grow our business and it's, you know, early on we financed, you know, the farm was self-financed, uh, until we added those four hoop houses and a walk-in cooler. So, you know, the first few hoop houses, the land, those types of things were, we were able to do, um, because of off-farm jobs. And, uh, and so when we did take our first kind of big traditional loan, we had taken some other loans, some family loans um, that we had paid back, which which Drew and I have also talked about being very thankful and privileged and understand that, that that's not the situation for everyone to be able to have a, a family loan to put up our uh, two thirds of our first two house. So that, that we've paid back now. And, and so having those off farm jobs allowed us to grow our business more slowly until it was to a point where we said, okay, these four hoop houses in this walk-in cooler, we've got a market for that product. So then let's go ahead and take a more traditional loan, uh, with, you know, with interest in, in monthly payments and those types of things. Uh, but we didn't have to do that right when we started. Yeah. And I would say in addition, um, to that, um, you know, we've been farming. We also have two young daughters, um, Lydia's seven now and, uh, was born um just a couple of days after we put our first two pops up <laughs> we didn't get the plastic on that that one for a little bit because we were slightly delayed by having a baby and you let that get in the way <laughs> you know sometimes life just happens when you i was talking to her the whole time we were building the house when she was in my stomach and i was like can you please just hold off until august like we just need two more weeks and she didn't listen and um 
And then, you know, Allison was born um, right around the time we were putting up those four hoop houses. And so, you know, our kids, when we because we have off farm jobs, there also are some stresses like having good health insurance um, that Adam gets through Michigan State that we haven't had to worry about, you know, sourcing that through the farm. Um, And that's like just, you know, another, I think, benefit. And it's a, a point of stress that we don't have to have because we have that opportunity through Adam's work with Michigan State. Yeah, I think that that stability it's got to come with a lot of challenges, right? I mean, the the juggling so many different things and and you know, ran into this concept a couple of podcasts ago of limited cognitive bandwidth. You know, there's just there's only so many things that it's actually possible to think about before your brain explodes. And and that must be hard, but at the same time, yeah, having that having a paycheck, man, there's nothing there's nothing that compares to having a a, a paycheck. Yeah. It it definitely has, you know, has benefited us. And um, like I said, for us to the flexibility of us to be able to, you know, and it's it's different every single day of how we wrap all of the different things that we're doing together. And it is a lot and it is chaotic. And some days it does feel overwhelming. And, you know, some days, some weeks go by and Adam and I are like, oh, it's so nice to see you. Like our paths haven't crossed in a while. Um, but I think that, you know, like Adam mentioned earlier is that we we love what we do. And it's hard to say, it's hard to look at this list of the things that we're involved with and say, okay, this is the piece of it that's going to go or we're going to stop doing this. And so, um, you know, I think that that has been, you know, really good for us is that at least we're in a place where we're doing things that we love, even when it gets chaotic and sometimes overwhelming. Maybe to add to that too, is that, you know, and sometimes it seems like, um, you know, it might be easier or different if we weren't involved in the same industry with our off-farm jobs or even the same projects with our off-farm jobs. Um, but I also think that that really helps us because if something at, at my job or something at Drew's job, or there's a, a an issue, you know, or, or not even not a bad issue, just something that comes up, you know, we speak the same language. We speak this, you know, that she can say, oh, this market, this is what's happening. Or, you know, we're doing we're doing long term planning for um, for the Michigan Farmers Market Association. Can I run some ideas by you and see what you think? And and I can do the same thing you know, with farmers that we work with to her. And it's not just like you're listening to me or I'm listening to you talk and you're going to say yes or uh-huh or okay. You know, it's, yeah, that's it's not like, really how our conversation you know, We have, you know, because we work in the same industry, we have the ability to, to brainstorm together on the work, our off farm jobs as well. Yeah. And we also, you know, in agriculture, I think, and especially with the programs and the farms that we work with, it's, we've been able to, you know, bring our kids with us. And so um, when we go on Hoop Houses for Health site visits in Northwest Michigan for four days, we take Lydia and Allison, you know, they they live on a farm and they get to go see other farms and they think it's as fascinating as we do in, in different ways, of course. Um, but, you know, every, everyone that we work with or the vast majority of people that we work with have been really open to us um, having our kids with us. And we've made that decision that um, 
we we definitely do work a lot and we don't want it to always be like okay is it is it our kids or is it our family or is it work or like what's the priority today but we're trying to develop this lifestyle where we can do it all at the same time and sometimes that means our kids coming to work with us or our kids going to conferences with us or going on site visits and we just um you know do our best to make that work we say and you know, maybe another thing that's important to add in is that um, we don't want it to sound like it's always peachy that, you know, we hop in the truck and we've got our kids and we go to these other farms and, you know, everyone rides great or, you know, it's that we've, we've been married 11 years now um, and it, it hasn't always been, you know, happy go lucky, especially as you're, you know, finishing school, building a business, starting a family, you know, that though they're, our stresses and you know we we do we do argue and we do fight sometimes and and as we've you know as our kids have grown and as our business has grown and i think as we've grown together we've you know figured out how you know how to make that okay that you know we aren't always going to get along and there are days where you know i'm really stressed or drew's really stressed or the kids are really stressed and we try to just not have all of us be stressed on all on, <laughs> all on the same thing, which, which also doesn't always happen, you know? And sometimes we have days where, you know, at the end of the day, you're just exhausted and you're like, all right, like, we're just going to try again tomorrow. Can we like, just let this day go and, you know, wake up refreshed and renewed. And, um, <laughs> you know, even Lydia now who's seven, some days will say, um, can I just try again tomorrow? And I'm like, yeah, let's all just try again tomorrow because, you know, we're also trying to figure out, we're learning every day about parenting and all of the joys and challenges that come along with that. And so, um, it, it, as much as we're learning about how to make our marriage work and how to make our farm work and how to make our jobs work, um, it's a constant you know, things are constantly changing and we're constantly figuring out how to do that better. So how do you guys figure out how to do that better? I mean, what you, you talked about, about kind of being able to call a halt at the end of the day and say, okay, we're, we're starting over again tomorrow. What else have you found works? Because I mean, what you guys are describing is it sounds like a pretty intense situation a lot of the time. Yeah, it is. And we also, both have consulting jobs that we do too that are uh, in other places. So that adds into it. But I think, and Drew, uh, we kind of started joking about this, but when, before we got married, you know, we went through the the marriage counseling and what do you want out of a marriage? And, and, and the pastor that married us said, you know, sometimes you just need to say, uh, I'm sorry. And the response needs to be, you are forgiven. And it was kind of a joke between us for a long time of like, it kind of seemed hokey and okay, sure. You know, if we need to say this so that, you know, you'll marry us, that's, that's great. And it actually has become something that, that is pretty powerful in our relationship to be like, you know, when you say, I think one saying, I'm sorry, we're both pretty stubborn and uh, bullheaded sometimes. <laughs> um, determined. Determined. Driven. Yeah. And so, but to be able to, when you say you're sorry, like you're one of us is rec we're recognizing that we did something wrong. Even and if we don't know what it was. Even if we don't know what it is. Yeah. And then for that other person to say you're forgiven is kind of, I think it takes, 
it, it takes those things that when you do have fights and when you do have arguments and those things that just build and build and build and build and build, they might be little things, but you know, they build to a point where it's like, it can explode and it, you might be, you don't even know what you're fighting about. You're just fighting, you know? And so being able to just that, I feel like that, you know, end of the day, can we just try tomorrow or, you know, I'm sorry. And you're forgiven are kind of like a, a little reset button or a big reset button, you know, for our relationship. And, and that says, you know, we love each other and we are doing this together and it's not easy, but we're doing this together. And it allows us, I think, as we've, because we have so much going on and because we have kids that sometimes interrupt conversations and we don't have a ton of spare time to just like, you know, sit down after dinner and talk it out, um, which we love to do when when we're able to make time for it. But I think that, you know, we really try to not hold grudges or let things build up and just be able to um, let things go. And that we definitely, you know, agree and talk about things that are, um, you know, long-term visions and things that are incredibly important to us and how we, what, what we, you know, see our farm looking like in 10 years and in 20 years. And, uh, you know, someday when we're 80 or 90, what this place is going to be to us. Um, you know, those are things that we spend a lot of time talking about, but, um, we don't get on each other about little things like where the potatoes are going to get planted or if there was a change of plans and, you know, something else got seeded and, you know, all of those things, we just kind of let each other take the lead on. And, um, and that's probably something that has changed more to over, you know, the last since probably since Lydia was born after the seven years is that we just we kind of have developed different roles. Um, so we, we actually since we've had kids, we work less side by side on the farm, but we both contribute in different ways. Let's take a break and and uh, and get a word from our sponsors here. And then we'll be back with Adam and Drew Montry to uh, talk some more about Ten Hens Farm and getting along. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost Company makers of living media for organic growers since 1992. In the transplant greenhouse, all of your investment in plant materials, heat, labor, and overhead depend on the performance of the media where you expect your plants to grow. And that media has a really hard job to do, produce a healthy plant in just a few cubic centimeters of soil. When I started farming, I focused on getting the cheapest ingredients I could find to make my own potting soil, and later on finding cheap potting soil that was already put together. But I found what so many farmers have that saving money on inputs doesn't always result in increased profits. Jennifer at Vermont Compost can tell story after story of customers who switch to less expensive options, but who have come back to Vermont Compost for the consistency and the quality of their potting soils. And even though it's not all about saving money, Vermont Compost pre-buy program can help you get what your plants need at the best price with the best shipping options delivered at a time that works best for you. Plus, their shared truckloads program organizes shipping to other regions in ways that get shipping prices down to the level you'd pay right there in the great state of Vermont. Feed the soil. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheeled tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but they are truly superior pieces of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability that every farm needs. 
I've worked with BCS tractors for over 24 years, and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs. And I'm not the only fan. More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two-wheeled tractor. And these really are small tractors, with the kinds of features found on their four-wheeled cousins and a wide array of equipment. Power harrows, rotary plows, flail mowers, snow throwers, sickle bar mowers, chippers, log splitters, ah, you name it. You can probably put it on a BCS. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. bcsamerica.com. Great. So we're back with Adam and Drew Montry of Ten Hens Farm in Bath, Michigan, which is right outside of East Lansing, which is right outside of Lansing. Adam and Drew, I think it's really interesting what you described before the break about, I'd almost call it a demand-driven scaling up. You said that in in the early years, you kind of did this process of of building and expanding as the market was building and expanding. But then a few years ago, you had an opportunity to to dramatically increase your production and and dove in and bought these four high tunnels and put those up on your farm. And so it's I think it's kind of interesting how you kind of have this stepwise approach. Can you talk a little bit more about how your markets have developed and how you've worked to develop your markets? So uh, maybe it's helpful to kind of position where Lansing is and what, what was happening or what is happening. And, and so we're about uh, an hour away from Grand Rapids on the west side of the state and about an hour from Ann Arbor and about an hour and 20 to an hour and 30 minutes from Detroit. And a lot, all three of those places have had and for a long time a very big food culture. So, you know, good restaurants, um, not necessarily, I mean, they definitely have high end restaurants, but also just like solid, good food, as well as these high end restaurants. And Lansing was sort of situated in the middle of those where we had a few, um, you know, one or two, and then one would close. One's kind of been here forever and, and will probably continue to be. Um, but we didn't have that in Lansing. And Uh, I grew up working in restaurants. I worked in for about 15 years, everything from washing dishes um, to line cook in the back of the house and everything from busing to bartending, you know, waiting tables and that in the front of the house. So one of the things that we love to do and what we do spend our money on is going out to eat. And there weren't always great places here to do that. Um, and what happened a few years ago, I, I think maybe people just were like, well, it's not going to, it's not here, so it can't survive or it's not going to survive or there's not a demand for it. And what ended up happening was, uh, one of the, uh, uh, actually two separate groups of people came here and they both opened a food truck. Um, so two food trucks started and we got connected with them pretty quickly, um, through mutual friends at different, um, for different friends for different ones of those food trucks. And so, you know, we kind of said, all right, like, here we go, let's start selling a little bit more. Um, and as they grew and they tried to kind of feel out what was happening, um, did they want to open a bricks and mortar restaurant also? Did they not? One of them went ahead and did it. One of them waited another year and did it. And so once that happened, we, we were kind of at this point of saying, all right, like we can supply these restaurants as they grew, we could supply them more. And now as people have seen those, you know, those restaurants be successful, other restaurants have opened. And so, you know, right now I would say in Lansing, we're in this or grading Lancer area, we're in this very 
big expansion phase of, of restaurants. And I think probably what will end up eventually happening is, you know, it'll grow and then it won't be able to support the number there and it may shrink a little. And I think eventually it'll find its balance. Um, but right now we've been able to, to supply restaurants and, and now we're at a point because we supply, you know, a number of them and we have our systems in place of how we do ordering, how we do pricing, how we do, um, invoicing, um, how we do and when we do deliveries, those types of things, you know, we can walk into any new restaurant that opens and say, here's a sample, here's our price list. Here's how we do ordering. Here's how we do these things. And we've got our, you know, got our stuff together, so to speak in, in a professional way. And we know how to grow to a point of supplying them on a weekly basis with what they'd like. So I think that, that that's kind of, you know, where we've, where we've grown into. Um, and also now that we've, we've grown Beyond that, there's other farms in a multi-farm CSA and some other things that that are in the area that um, that we're also selling into. And maybe Drew, do you think it's important to talk about, or you want to talk about how we got started before those restaurants or the market that we sell at was around? Yeah, because I, I mean, I think that's a part, a really interesting part of how we've kind of changed the way that we do business. When we started, uh, we thought. Um, so we built our f- first two house in July of 2008 and, um, and then got it planted in August and probably, I can't remember exactly when we covered it, but probably sometime that fall. And we, it was interesting at, at that point in time because we um, started having product when most farms around us uh, were shutting down for the season. And so that was, pro- that was not, um, <laughs> that was not planned. <laughs> so we, um, we, you know, Lydia was born that summer. Um, she came early and, um, you know, things didn't go according to plan that summer, but it actually probably worked out better for us because, um, we had product in the winter when all of the farms around us were starting to slow down for the season. And so that first year, uh, we just, um, had, we, we started with a small, email group of people that we knew in our community. I think it was like either 14 or 17. I'd have to go back and look, but people that we knew in our community and we just sent out an email and said, Hey, we have product to sell this winter. If you'd like to buy fresh produce during the winter, you can send me an email, um, by, I think it was like by Tuesday at noon and then they could pick it up on Wednesday or something like that. And so that first winter we did all direct sales and it was just by email and people would come to our, our home and our farm and pick it up. And we really had thought in the first you know, couple of years of farming that we were probably going to go more strongly a direct market route um, where we had on-farm sales and did some farmer's markets. Um, and we had, um, of course, been working with our local township who um, was interested in starting a farmer's market about starting a year-on market in our community. Um, so we thought that that would be the way that we, we were going to go. Um, but then, you know, when the food trucks um, started popping up and um, we real, soon realized that um, because we juggle so many things off farm and um, our time is limited, that selling to restaurants um, and then other farms and a couple local grocery stores um, worked in terms of just managing it all um, worked a lot better for us. Um, so we still sell to um we still sell at the Bath Farmers Market um, every Thursday, and we still um, do. We're kind of re- playing with again the idea of having some on-farm sales, but we've moved and transitioned into these restaurant sales, um, which has been a really good option for us. And I think you know 
one of the things that Adam didn't mention is that when we make um, connections with new restaurants, something, you know, that I think we're both observing is that chefs move a lot in this community. And so sometimes, you know, as long as we have a good solid relationship with a chef, if that chef moves to another restaurant, it's like, boom, now we have another restaurant. And um, that, that also just that transition, the chef transition has helped us a lot. So, Adam, you mentioned your process for ordering and pricing and invoicing. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? How does that how does that work for Ten Hands Farm? Sure. So we do everything by text. All our ordering is by text. Uh, we send out or availability on either Sunday or Monday for Tuesday delivery and then Wednesday for Thursday delivery. Um, and they just text back, they get a list of, you know, here is what we have this week. If we are say low on an item, we'll put that on there. So, you know, uh, we may have plenty of salad mix at some point in, but if we, we maybe are down to the last of our beets, say for winter storage, we'll put on, you know, limited amount. And so whoever orders those first gets those, those beets. Um, so all our ordering is that way. Um, our prices our, we have a set price list for the year. Um, I would say that our restaurant prices are somewhere between 80% and 100% or, or equal to our market prices. And the way we set that up is if we have a product that we can sell all through market at you know that retail price and we know we can sell it through the market, then the restaurants pay the same price as that market if they would like them. Um, other things are, again, you know, 80-ish percent or so um, of, of retail price at the market for the, for the restaurants and wholesale. Um, we do all of our invoicing through QuickBooks. Um, we do all of our payroll, um, processing through QuickBooks as well. So we have QuickBooks online and then we have QuickBooks payroll that are integrated with each other. Uh, I think that costs around 75 bucks a month now for those two, I think one's 45 or 30 and one's 30 or, or close to that. Um, we do at net 30 on everything. Um, some of the restaurants want to pay, some pay us on site when we drop off, some write a check, um, some pay cash, um, based on the invoice, um, some wait till 30 days and, you know, we get that check right at the 30 day mark. Some, right. some of them are beyond that 30 days and we kind of have a, you know, unspoken, we don't tell them, but I guess maybe we're telling them now, you know, we kind of have this, this 10 day sort of grace period where if we get to be 40 days, you know, we, we give them a call and, and say, Hey, you know, this is where you're at. Uh, these invoices are due. Um, and we've only had two issues, uh, where people didn't pay, where we actually had to get naggy about it. And, and they both eventually paid. Um, and, and those were usually at times when there was transition at the restaurants as well. You know, so it's, it's, there was transition time there. Things may have got shuffled or, or whatever. So yeah, so that, that it's all, all orders on text, invoicing through QuickBooks um, at, at net 30. And then uh, yeah, the pricing, they get the price list at the beginning of the year and, uh, and go from there. And I think that, you know, one of the things to just so, so people understand is that we have a relationship with all of the chefs that we work with. So that relationship doesn't start with a text message. You know, that's not right. how we do invoicing, but the relationship, you know, Adam mentioned already that, you know, if it's someone new that we haven't met before, we go introduce ourselves. But most of the restaurants that we work with um, and the chefs that work with, they most of them 
if not all, have come to the farm, have brought their restaurant crews to the farm. Some of them have helped us pull plastic on a house. Some of them have, you know, helped out with other, you know, activities on the farm. Um, and we try to at least once a year eat at all of the restaurants that we sell to. Um, and some of them we eat at much more than that. Um, so, you know, the kind of ordering and the invoicing is, um, you know, <laughs> pretty quick and easy and back and forth. Um, but we definitely have relationships with the chefs and the restaurants that we work with beyond that. And that's, I think it's important too to add on to that, what, exactly what Drew said is that um, yeah, they've all been out at the farm. They have all brought crew out. Um, some of them we're also have become friends with. And so they'll come over and, you know, we'll cook dinner for them and it's got nothing to do with work. I mean, yes, it's a, a business relationship, but it's a friendship also. And so, you know, the way we feel about it, we both really like to cook and, you know, they cook for every, they cook for people every day. And so, you know, there's definitely some that, that we have over to our house. Um, to, to eat just completely friendship based, not, not anything work based. I guess one of the perks of working with restaurants is that when, when we go out to dinner now at restaurants that we sell to, we, and I don't, I don't think that this is probably just for us, but we get so spoiled and, um, you know, we get things that aren't, aren't necessarily on the menu and the chefs that we work with are just able to completely transform the produce that we grow. And that's so fun to be a part of. When you're selling to the restaurants, is it case packs or are you allowing people, I mean, if somebody wants 19 bunches of beets, can they order 19 bunches of beets? Yeah. So most things are ordered by the pound. Um, we do do a few things by account. Like if, uh, you know, we started doing strawberries this year for the first time. And so they, you know, some, they would want to order number of quarts cause they may not know, you know, how many pounds are in a quart, that kind of thing. But on right. the whole it's ordered by poundage. Um, sometimes for things like, you know, romaine or butter crunch, they'll order, um, they'll, they'll ask us, well, about what size it is or what do you think they weigh? And then they'll order, uh, a count on those, but on the whole it's, it's poundage. And is it, is it a standard? I mean, do, again, like just to take the beet example, I mean, I always pack beets in a 25 pound case. Um, we didn't do anything else. Do you guys do, I mean, somebody wants to order 17 pounds of beets. Can they, can they do that? Yep, they can order whatever they want poundage wise. So, yeah. And, and we actually don't pack any, the only thing that we pack into boxes are, uh, our wholesale accounts and, and they supply and those are all 10 pound boxes of beets, 10 pound boxes of turnips, 10 pound boxes of carrots. Um, so, and they supply the boxes for those. Um, and so everything else is either packed into, um, bulb crates that we drop off and then kind of cycle through, um, for, you know, things like potatoes or onions or those types of things. Um, a lot of times the chefs will order a crate, you know, they won't even put a poundage on it. They'll say, I'll take a, you know, a crate of red, a crate of russets and a crate of Yukons or, or something like that. Um, and, but then other things are packed, um, into 18 by 24 bags for the most part. So, you know, they may order 12 pounds of salad mix and we usually pack about three pounds into each bag. So they'll get four bags. And one of the things that we've found is that there are some restaurants when they're just getting started or food trucks when they're just getting started that have a lower volume where, um, you know, we've had really, Adam and I have had really, you know, kind of difficult conversations about does it make sense to add this restaurant account when 
it, when we add up, you know, our cost of delivery and um, to what we're delivering to them, you know, how are we going to decide what is the minimum quantity that they need to purchase to make it worth our while? And we also want to be able to invest in other small food businesses. So there are sometimes early on when a new business is getting started, whether that's another uh, farm or an incubator farm or a local grocer or a food truck or a restaurant, where sometimes we make decisions in our business where it doesn't make complete economic sense. And that's, I think we both agree on it. Adam's a little bit more, <laughs> leads a little bit more towards the economics of the decision. Um, but then it gets to a point where, you know, we have some restaurants where we say, you know, we can't, we can't make that delivery. This is too small of a volume. But if you meet us at one of the other restaurants that we're delivering to, then that probably, then we'd be happy to do it for you. Um, and so, you know, those are part, that's kind of part of that marketing relationship and for us trying to figure out, you know, what, who does it make sense to us? Who does it make sense for us to sell to? And I guess, I mean, part of that sounds like is, is making an investment in somebody that you think is going to grow into, into a more viable customer at some point in the future. Exactly. And I think that we're fortunate enough to have cash flow now on the farm, both through farm sales and through our off-farm jobs where we can, you know, pick up. I mean, it's not like all of our, <laughs> all the restaurants we work with are, you know, buying small volumes, but it, we're at a point where we can say, okay, like let's maybe not make money so much on this one right now. Um, because we're making money on other parts of the business and with our off farm jobs. So we can kind of, you know, float that a little while until we see kind of what they're going to end up at. Are there certain crops that you guys focus on for your sales to restaurants? Salad mix is a big one. Definitely. Um, tomatoes in the summer. Yeah, tomatoes, heirlooms, cherries, and red slicers um, are definitely you know big ones for the uh, for the restaurants. Cucumbers, um, some of them, you know, poblano peppers are for a couple of them where we used to grow a lot of different kinds of hot peppers, and we've kind of been like, okay, how do we pare this down? And you know, I think as we've grown to, and Drew, if this makes sense to you, you know, if that, or if it doesn't say so, but you know, where we've kind of gone as we've scaled up, and I think this is where everyone goes as they scale up, is we've gone from less volume or smaller volumes of so many crops to larger volumes of a lesser number of crops, if that makes sense. And, and it's not like we're only growing two or three things. I mean, we're still growing probably 25 or 30 different things, but it's definitely more volume of them. Yeah. And I think that what we also try to do is as we, um, as we get to know the restaurants that we're selling to is that sometimes we, Sometimes we take a seed catalog and, uh, you know, the Johnny's catalog just came this week and sometimes we'll take it and we'll sit at the, you know, at the bar in the restaurant and be like, Hey, anything out of here look cool to you? Is there anything we should try to grow for you? Um, you know, we sell to a food truck called the purple carrot truck and we, um, sometimes grow purple carrots for them. And it's, um, you know, things like that where we might not grow a huge volume of them, but we might for, you know, some of our restaurants that buy larger volumes grow things that they're really interested interested in. Um, and we always, I mean, Adam, you're exactly right. We're definitely growing larger volumes of fewer crops now, but I think we always try to leave a little bit of space, um, for things that we can play with and that, um, 
and that our kids can play with too. So each of our kids have a bed in our big hoop house um, where they get to plant, you know, their little hoop house inside the big hoop house and they get to plant in those four, four by eight beds, whatever they want to plant, um, however they want to do it with, you know, some guy, Adam helps them with string tomatoes when it gets to that point. Um, but I think that, you know, we're certainly production oriented. And then we also try to try to leave some spaces where we can play with new crops either that we want to or that our kids want to. That's great. You don't make the kids trellis their own tomatoes out. No, not <laughs> they're yet. Not allowed, they're not allowed to uh, to walk across the purlins on top of the house yet either. Or, <laughs> there's certain things where, you know, there's lim- some limit. So I think I'd be probably doing a disservice not to get into uh, the winter production and the, uh, well, and the high tunnel production in general, Adam. I mean, you're especially known as being a, an, expert or at least a resource in that area. You're modest enough. You're probably not going to label yourself as a, as an expert. Um, but can you tell us how your, how your production works in the high tunnels? Sure. And Drew obviously jump in here at any point. Uh, yeah, I'm not meaning to exclude you. Drew. <laughs> no, so I would say it's changed over time that when we first started, it was kind of similar to what we were just saying. You know, we had actually beds running the short distance. So we had 23 beds in a house and each one of them had, you know, different things in it as we were trying to figure out what we like to grow, what the markets wanted, um, what volumes we needed, those types of things. And, you know, as we've changed, we're now into basically blocking systems. So we're doing, you know, our beds all run the long ways. They're all basically four foot wide beds with the one foot walkway. And, uh, they're usually single crops. So, you know, we've got six houses, we do two in tomatoes every year. So we've got a three year rotation with those tomatoes. You know, we do one in cucumbers. Um, we do one in peppers, which I know doesn't help with the tomato rotation, but we at least have them staggered between there year to year. Um, and, and then the same kind of thing in the winter where we're doing, you know, whole houses of spinach, whole houses of kale, um, whole houses of salad mix, those types of things. So, so we're blocking now um, for rotation and for volume. And, you know, more or less the way that it works for us is that, you know, we're planting in the spring. We can do transplants where we're at in the, you know, warmer part of zone four, colder part of zone five. Um that we're planting in basically transplants can go at the end of February for us, direct seeded stuff. We've pushed to kind of beginning to middle of March and then our warm season crops are going in, um, usually April 15th to April 23rd, 24th, um, around there, there and there all summer. And then we're coming back in and sometime between depending on the crop, you know, first of August and, um, you know, end of October, we're putting in this, this winter crop, sometimes transplants, sometimes direct seeded, um, you know, with the idea of we are keeping those tunnels full as much as we can, as often as we can, when the crop's ready to come out, you know, we're pulling that crop, prepping that space and getting something planted again. You know, the way we look at it is we paid a premium to cover that space. And so we need to keep things growing in there because, you know, those without anything growing in them, those tunnels are only costing us money or they're not you know, realizing their higher profit potential that we could have. So all of the tunnels are unheated? All of the tunnels are unheated. All of them are single layer plastic. So we used to do double layer plastic. 
um, when we started. And then when we rented that space next door for at our neighbors, we don't have electricity over there. So, um, we, there are some ways to do two layers without electricity with the, the foam blocks or the plastic blocks or, or otherwise, or, um, there's some solar options now that are out there, but we just said, Hey, you know what, let's, let's try this. Let's see what it looks like to do one layer of plastic and see how long we can grow with it. And, you know, it, and it was only one year and it was only a few houses, but, you know, comparatively, I think the single layers do just as well for us as the double layers. And, you know, it's when we start looking at the numbers of it, it's like, okay, if we have one house, you know, and a sheet is 500 of sheet of plastic, let's just say is 500 bucks, you know, okay, well that's 500 bucks extra to double layer it every four to five years. So not very much, but when you start to throw six houses into there, or we actually have another house that we use for wash pack and storage, it's a, a 20 by 48, nothing's grown in it. But it's like, when you start saying, okay, well there's six or seven extra sheets of plastic, you know, that become at 500 bucks a pop, that becomes a different, you know, a different economic game than, uh, than a single house or even two houses. So yeah, all single, we cover, uh, we put an internal cover in them. Um, like most people do, uh, we have a big one that covers the whole thing, um, that rides on some, some wires that, uh, I know you and Colin had talked about. So, you know, that is that, that we used to, that goes in about, uh, mid October to early November gets it put in place. Um, this time of year, we're pulling it open and closed on sunny days and, and cloudy days. It gets closed to trap that heat in. Um, and then it usually stays on in the spring over the warm season stuff, well, the early seeded spring stuff. And then the warm season crops, it's, uh, it's staying on usually until we string tomatoes because once we string those tomatoes up, you know, there's not a way to open and close that cover. Okay. So Adam also, they are unheated, but we do sometimes in the spring, depending on how cold the spring is, when Adam mentioned that our warm season crops go in around April 15th, if we have tomatoes in and it is a cold spring, we do run portable propane heaters overnight. Yeah, that's good to say. And, And we usually end up running those probably three times a year in the spring. And they're just little you know, 30,000 to 80,000 BTU ones that we hook up to a five gallon propane tank, like for a grill. And we usually will start them on those cold nights. You know, we'll close the tunnel down early to build up some heat in there. And then we might start them at like 10 30, 11 o'clock at night, and then just let them burn out. And, and I think that not, I think, I mean, we've done it. We could not do those and be okay. Um, but it's also just a little bit of insurance as well to, to look out there and see, you know, just lets us sleep a little better on those nights or, you know, and I think too, that the, the tomatoes mm. wouldn't necessarily die. They wouldn't even probably get cold damage, but it, it does keep it a little warmer. And I think that early on it keeps them moving along, um, as well. Yeah. I actually think that's probably more important with the tomatoes than, than we oftentimes give account to on an unheated tunnel is just that, that night temperature. It's not just a matter of keeping the tomato alive, but it's a matter of making it think that it's summer (laughs) time to grow. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. So you mentioned you don't have electricity across the road. Um, do you have water over there? We do. It's close enough that we actually, and we run everything off of our house well pump still. Um, we're close enough that we can run to one of our hydrants. We can run 250 feet of hose and then it ties into a drip over there. And we can't run all three houses at the same time, but we can run two of them. So, uh, two of the three. So usually when we're watering over there, we, uh, um, 
you know, our watering two and then watering the other one. But in the winter, we don't have any water over there because I don't think either of us are interested in running. You know, there's there's a barbed wire, an old an old fence um, from when there were pigs at our house, you know, long decades ago. And there's a tree lines of autumn olive. And, you know, there's just a we're not going to roll out and roll up hoses every time. So so we don't have water in the winter there. And the way we deal with that is that at this time of the year, um, we're overwatering intentionally so that we're building up some of that soil moisture that can then carry us through the winter months and, and into the spring. That gives me the willies. <laughs> <laughs> Not water. You know, I, I thought we had to water in the winter. I always thought we had to water in the winter. And then we were out east, uh, you know, in New England, talking to some farmers out there. And they were like, yeah, we, you know, we don't really water that much in the winter. Sometimes we don't water at all. And, and so, you know, just hearing that was like, well, Hey, let's, let's try it. You know? So. And there's a lot of, um, there is a lot of moisture that builds up in those tunnels. So when you pull like on a nice sunny day in early February, when you pull that internal cover open, there's condensation on there. So there's definitely some moisture in that house. We're not irrigating, but it's not like it's just a complete dry zone either. Ventilation is just through the roll up sides. Um, so we have roll ups and then we also have uh, shutters on them in various forms, you know, mostly aluminum shutters. One of the houses is wired to be on a thermostat. The rest we uh, prop open with the handy tube, little piece of two by four, stick it in there. Okay. So, And those are just up in the peaks on the end walls, right? Most of them are, well, a couple of them are in the peak. A couple of them are on each side. Um, we've switched over to the, the used tunnels that we built. We put big, some of them had big doors. We also built big doors on them so that we could get the tractor in there. And in those cases, some of times there's not enough room for a big shutter up above the door because they're eight foot tall doors. And so those are on each side of the doors then, which doesn't get as much of that humidity out that's that's up to, or that moisture out that's up top, but it, we, we will open those and, and especially in the winter. So right now our sides are, um, even though it's 45 here today or so, you know, our sides are uh, wiggle wired in. So our roll ups are not functioning right now. Um, but we do use those shutters because, you know, it, it doesn't matter what, well, what we're talking about with the humidity. You know, we don't want, you know, 55 degrees and 100 percent humidity and not a lot of sun. I mean, that's a recipe for fungal growth in really densely planted plants, you know. So right. we'll open those even at about, you know, 45 or 50 um, when it's inside, even 45 or 50, even in the winter, if it's sunny and it's, uh, you know, it might be zero out, but it might be sunny and it'll heat up in there. And we'll open those to try to get that moisture out, you know, having it be 80 degrees or 75 degrees in there during the day in the winter is not what we're looking for. That's not going to get us more plant growth. All that's going to do is stress the plants out because when that sun goes down, it's going to be 10, 12 degrees again in there. And they're going to have a, you know, 80, 70, 80 degree temperature swing. They're, they're not happy. And you guys don't worry about the fact that you're venting out that precious moisture um, over on the other piece of property. No, I think that there's, there is so much moisture and so much humidity in there in the winter um, that we're trying to, I'd say if anything, we have too much humidity and we're trying to get that out because, you know, it's, it, it, it will, especially in things like salad mix or, you know, head lettuce, you know, downy mildew is uh, uh, an issue for sure in them. So in other fungal diseases too. 
So Adam, I'm really interested in this. Uh, you mentioned the the high tunnel as a packing house. Um, you said it was a 20 by 48. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that's constructed? Sure. So, yep, it's a standard 20 by 48 foot hoop house. Um, it's positioned between uh, the field that's closest to, to the cooler and the cooler so that everything kind of flows from the fields to that point. Um, we do wash things outside when it's warm enough. We don't have really tend to wash things inside in there. Um, it's got a, a woven, you know, landscape fabric floor. It acts as again, the, you know, kind of packing area as well as, um, storage for tools and, um, bulb crates and court containers and, you know, everything else and kids toys and those types of things too. Um, so it's, uh, it's set up like that. And when you come in, we've got tables on the right, so things are washed outside. They come in. Um, there's the scale bags, uh, those types of things that will get weighed out. There's a big table for mixing salad mix or other greens. Um, then they get weighed and then they get, you can turn around and get it set, uh, set on the, um, a table there behind it where, where then it can go out and into the, the cooler facility or into our walking cooler. I would say that it, it works well. Um, it is, cheap for sure. It was part of the used ones that we bought. Um, but even new, I think it's, it's clearly less than a pole barn. Um, but it does have its limitations without, you know, we don't have running water in there right now, but, but, and it, it is temporary for us, but I think that you could take one, um, and, and make it more permanent, run water into it, those types of things so that it could work really well. And then in the summer, what's nice about it is we, uh, we take shade cloth, a 70% shade cloth and put it over the top of there so that any, especially the greens, um, that get moved in there aren't in a, you know, hot outside or in hot weather. And then, uh, also for employees, you know, packing stuff in a covered area. Uh, if it was just the regular greenhouse plastic without that shade cloth, it would be, you know, way, way, way too hot for both employees and product. Is that ventilated with roll-up sides then, or like your other tunnels? Yep, it has roll-up sides, and then it has a person door at one end, and then we've actually built um, big swinging doors at the other end, which is about a seven by uh, seven feet tall by eight feet wide, so two four-foot doors um, on the far end. But we need to get a stump ground out or ground out a stump before we can get that door to work. Okay, and and with that enclosed space, then does that become a, a rodent-proof, in, insect-proof, or at least rodent-resistant? And insect resistant space. Yeah. I, or is there still room for all those critters to come in? I'd say it's, it's better than doing it outside. I mean, it's not sealed at the ground, you know, if things, if they do want to get in, they can, but we also have the, you know, tables where things are getting, you know, washed and packed on. And those tables are definitely, you know, before we, we harvest or before we pack on them, they're getting washed. And after we pack on them, they're getting washed. So, you know, and, and it just being covered in general, you know, is a really nice thing as well. Um, just so we you know don't have anything, you know, packing out in the open works, but also having something over the top, you know, so that if there's birds, if there's anything else that, you know, flying overhead, that, that it's covered and, and protected under there also. And then earlier in our conversation, you guys, I forget who it was. One of you alluded to storage crops that you're doing. Um, so is that alongside of your winter production that you've got, got storage crops that you're releasing through the winter season? 
Yeah. So this is, we've always done a, a little bit of them. This is the first year that we've done a lot of them. Um, and from what it seems like right now at the beginning of December, we need to do a lot more. So, you know, definitely. And, and this has come from being able to rent that other property, you know, so that we can put things in so that there is open land in you know June and July where we can seed, you know, carrots or beets or, you know, even later in the year doing it, but we did a lot of hacker eye turnips right now that are in this, then the, the cooler. Um, and then, and uh, definitely the potatoes, the beets have been something that the wholesale market is really interested in tricolored beets and tricolored carrots. So those are things that we're scaling up on um, and actually thinking about maybe renting some other property from a neighbor on the other side of us uh, to be able to do more acreage of those winter storage crops. I think that, you know, one. They help sell the greens at the the market because it is a winter market. So they help sell the greens and and the greens help sell the roots. Um, But also it's really nice to just be able to, you know, go in and pull things out of the cooler when we need them and not have to go, you know, go out and play this guessing game of when are we going to harvest, when it's going to be sunny enough this week. Um, So just being able to to have that in there and have, um, you know, have crops and in my mind, that's cash banked. You know, it's basically, we, we have a cooler full of cash right now. It's just our job to figure out how to withdraw it. And right. so I, it's, that's nice to have in there. Um, especially given the last two years, we, you know, the, sun, the, the overall temperature has been warmer for the last two years, but the winters, our last two winters have been really, really cold where, you know, come mid January, late January, you know, we haven't been harvesting out of the tunnels very much. And so having this other crop that were products that we can take um, to market or to restaurants is is, is going to be really it has been really nice this year so far. And I think for us, just having that walk in cooler, it was a game changer. <laughs> you know, yeah. it allows us to do storage crops, but it, um, it just in terms of being able to scale up and to have some more control over quality post harvest and quality and maintaining that quality of your product that has also helped relieve some of the stress um you know with harvest and it's just been an incredible asset that probably came in retrospect i wish we would have had sooner and you mean year-round drew right not just for the winter oh yeah exactly year-round yeah to be able to harvest, say, green beans or to harvest lettuce or set whatever the day before market and instead of trying to do it all at one in one day. That's a great point. Yeah, it's one of those things on my farm. We built the walk-in cooler uh, in July of our second year. I think we finished it in early August. Um, and I say second year. We started our farm and started farming in August. And so that by the next August, we had the walk-in cooler. Right. And, and it was, I hate the term game changer because I think it's overused. But walk-in coolers are truly game changers. <laughs> I mean, they make everything different on the farm. Everything, I mean, it, everything changes. Yeah. And, and all of it for the better. Yeah, yeah, I agree completely. So, Drew, I wanted to ask you, um, and God, I, I think I do this in every podcast when I ask this kind of a question. I go like, I am the middle-aged white guy asking this question from my my perspective of privilege here. But I know that, that being a woman farmer comes with some particular challenges. And I would think especially um, being in a relationship with with somebody as high profile in the industry as Adam is, um, can you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think that, um, for the, for the most part, I have, um, 
worked really hard over the last 10 years to earn respect in this in this industry and and i think i i have that um but there are definitely times where and in addition to that i get to work with women through my um, job with the michigan farmers market association position who like incredibly inspire me whether they're farmers or market managers or um you know work with msu extension and um i think that those types of networks and having um other people that you can just throw ideas off of as well as friends um you know can be really valuable and we used to always um well they used to always harass me in the beginning years um that i was just adam's wife because everywhere we would go would be like oh you're adam's wife and um so i one of one of my colleagues would they would tease adam and they would just be like oh are you drew's husband um at conferences (laughs) and so you know we kind of we kind of tried to like lighten that mood but there's definitely um there's definitely some gender stereotypes and some differences in the way that men and women are respected um, in, in different venues. Um, but I, I think that um, there are things that are happening right now in food and egg that are um, inc- incredibly um, encouraging. Um, so in Michigan, uh, Michigan Food and Farming Systems is working on building a women in egg network. And there's, you know, women in egg networks at the national level. Um, the Center for Regional Food Systems here in Michigan is having conversations about racial equity um, along with other partners. And um, even at the state level, there's some work with, um, you know, the Leadership Academy and making sure that there's um, an equal number of women um, getting leadership training as there are men. And so a lot of that is really encouraging to me. And I think that there is going to be a transition to having um, stronger and more female voices involved in decision making because there's so many times where I walk into a room and it's primarily, um, you know, white guys <laughs> and making decisions about, um, you know, state level programs and policies. And um, I think that if there are more, um, there are so many brilliant uh, women farmers um, and the more women farmers that are able to kind of draw on strong networks and um, be part of that decision making um, is going to be really beneficial for all of us, not just for women, for all of us as a society. Awesome. Thanks, Drew. Yeah. So with that, let, let's turn to the lightning round here that we do at the end of every show. So, Drew, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Favorite. It's not necessarily a tool, but I would say our walk-in cooler is my favorite piece of equipment. And remind me again how big that t- that cooler is. Uh, eight by ten. Is that right, Adam? Yeah, it's right. And Chris, I think about four years ago when we were building it, you told me that yeah, we should build a bigger one, and <laughs> we should have built. It took us four years to get there, but now we need a bigger one. I, I think the phrase I probably used was 100 by 200, Adam, 100 by 200. And then we tell every other farmer that asks us, we're like, oh, you definitely need to build it bigger. Well, and the nice thing about a small cooler is that can always become your onion storage, you know, and next, you know, when you put up the next one, that becomes your roots, you know, roots and green storage over the winter. Definitely. Adam, what's your top tip for high tunnel construction? Build it with someone who knows what they're doing. If you can, right. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I think take your time. That, that is really true. But if you can't do that, take your time, make sure that you square it up and lay it out right and measure that multiple times. Because if it's out of square, the further you get into the building process, the the more it's going to be you know off and harder to build. 
Okay, so I know that some of the worst fights that I had with my farming partner were about how square was square. <laughs> and and I know and I and I know from talking to other people this is not uncommon. So how square is square, Adam? I think within an inch is good. Or maybe I should be asking Drew <laughs> how square is square. <laughs> That's actually something that I just leave up to Adam. There there are certain activities on the farm where I just walk away and I just tell you tell me, <laughs> you tell me when this is done. Um <laughs> Adam, do you have things that you walk away from too? Probably I should have things that I walk away from. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are more things where I encourage Adam to walk away from them. Yeah. So Adam has a really um, a quick temper and can <laughs> react to things pretty quickly. And we, in our early, and, and this is related to farming, early in relation to our farming career, I'd be like, you need to take like a 12 hour walk away from it. Um, <laughs> whether it's insect damage or, you know, something that's really frustrating him because he can, we make better decisions together when it's not after a really frustrating experience. That's true across the board. I think it's true for everybody. Um, I mean, you guys are enmeshed in a world of resources, but when you've got questions, where's the first place you turn? Other farmers. Definitely. No doubt about that. And you find that even in kind of your expert positions, that's still a still something that, that you can do without without jeopardizing your position as as kind of Adam Montry and Drew Montry of Ten Hands Farm. Oh, yeah. I think that we respect um, the farmers that we work with as much as they respect us. And I don't think that jeopardizes it in any way. It just strengthens it when we're back and forth um, asking what people are doing and asking for their opinions. Um, we we learn so much from other farmers. Um, I think it's yeah, it's a really incredible resource. And then, Drew, what's your favorite crop to grow? Uh, peas, green arrow peas. Shelling peas. Shelling peas. Oh, yeah. Aren't those just a giant pain in the ass? Oh, no. They, they, are the, they are the best tasting crop fresh from the plant. And uh, my great grandma, Lydia, who our daughter Lydia is named after, grew green arrow shelling peas. And my dad grows green arrow shelling peas. And it's one of my favorite childhood memories um, of just being able to go in the garden and eat fresh peas. Um, and so we grow them every year and our kids eat so many of them. Um, it's really fun for us. And we even, we sell some too. Love that. How about you, Adam? What's your favorite crop to grow? Cherry tomatoes are probably my favorite crop to grow. Uh, just, there's so many different varieties. There's so many different things that we try to do each year with them, different pruning, different training, you know, those types of things. And, um, I, I, I feel like they're sort of this, like tomatoes are this like horticultural crop where you get to use all these different things that you learned about how plants grow and how they fruit and why they do things. And, and you get to be a part of, you know, directing that, um, and they make money. <laughs> and it's, just, it's, it's so sweet that we both love pain in the ass crops. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And if you guys could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer selves one thing, what would it be? I have, um, I have five things that I think that beginning farmers need. Adam and I talk about this all the time. If we, if we were to do it over, what would we say? We, the things that I think farmers need to invest in are refrigeration, hoop houses, labor, a tractor. Um, and then we always say, um, for us, it's beer or <laughs> some type of fun, whatever it is to, you know, give some stress relief, just to make sure that like, if you can focus on the things that are going to make your farm productive, but also remember 
remember to have fun while you're doing it um, is really important. And I would agree with all those. And I think, you know, in general, what I would say too, is that when you get started or maybe I should just make it personal. When I got started, when we got started, like, like Drew said, I can sometimes have a pretty quick temper. And when I get stressed out, that gets even shorter. And there are going to be people, hopefully you're in a position where people are going to want to help you and try to help you. And if they're coming in, if it's family or it's friends and they're saying, Hey, what can I do to help? Don't be an asshole to them. They're trying to help. And you know, they understand that you're stressed out and they're asking what can they do to help because they can see that you're stressed out. So take a breath, be nice to them and, and understand that they're trying to, to make things better or easier or lend a hand to you. So if they say, what can I do? And you're trying to weed stuff or pack stuff or do whatever, just say, thank you. And, and you can do this to help me. And that probably comes with employees too. And just relationships in general. Like sometimes when you get really busy, um, we, we both try to invest in the people, um, that surround us, whether that's family or friends or colleagues. Um, and all of that is really important and important to remember even when you're busy and you're working every day from five in the morning till 11 or 12 at night, um, making time, making time for other people and to give yourself a little bit of break is important. Drew and Adam, thank you so much for being part of the farmer to farmer podcast. I really appreciate all the time and the energy that you guys brought to the show today. Yeah, Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 43 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast and that you can find the notes for this show at farmer to farmer by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Montri. That's M-O-N-T-R-I. If you enjoy the podcast, I think you will also enjoy my weekly email newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. The Flying Rutabaga runs the gamut from practical templates for delegation to guidelines for watering transplants. You can sign up at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, it would be great if you would pop on over to iTunes, leave us a review, and make a comment on the show notes, or tell your friends on Facebook. These reviews and referrals are the bread and butter of making this show available to an ever wider group of listeners. And you know what else? I'd love to hear your suggestions for guests on the show. I know a lot of things, but I know that I don't know all of the great farmers out there. Please visit farmertofarmerpodcast.com and use the contact form to tell me who you'd like to hear. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. (laughs) 